This podcast is brought to you by Watch City Research, your user research partner. Check out WatchCityResearch.com for insightful blog posts and to learn more about our UX research services. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the 97 UX Things podcast. Dan Berlin here, your host and book editor. This week, I'm joined by Michelle Morgan, who wrote the chapter, Make Learning a Part of Your Design Process. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, Dan. It's so great to be here. Awesome. Thanks for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Sure. Um, I am a lead experience designer. I work in an agency in Atlanta, um, an agency that has morphed over the years with the the curve of what happens in digital design. And so uh, our emphasis right now is on kind of complex enterprise and business intelligence and port- portals. Um, and so, you know, I like anything that is complex and there's a lot of, you know, let's, let's narrow it down to the, to the essence and then sort of add things back in as we, as mm-hmm. we find that they're really valuable. And do you concentrate more on the, the research side, design, strategy, somewhere else? Where do you focus your work? As a team, we're definitely full service, um, and we are a design-led agency instead of a, a lot of agencies are really sort of dev shops acting like agencies, or they might be visually led. So we are UX design. Our executive creative director is a UX design uh, practitioner and teacher, um, and so we have an opportunity to really spread ourselves across the full um width of a project or breadth of a project as much as we want to as individuals. I myself come out of a theory and criticism background, so I really enjoy the research. I'm, I spent a long time in the co-working and startup space in Atlanta, so I love the strategy part of it. Um, mm-hmm. The only part that I am not strong in is really sort of the UI and visual design aspect of delivering a package. Gotcha. And how about your career trajectory? Can you tell us how you discovered UX and uh, how you wound up where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, I started out as a commercial and institutional architect, um, and I loved asking my clients to describe how they wanted things to feel Mm. or how they, you know, especially in commercial and institutional, you're asking a representative of a company to describe what he wants the people who come in his building to feel, which is, you know, it equates to the stakeholder versus um, customer interviewing. I didn't even have any language for that. Um, But I had a friend who left architecture in the late 90s, 99, 2000. Um, We were working at a firm in New York together and she left to go be an information architect. And so it was always kind of in the back of my mind. And I would read up on stuff and kind of, she would mention things along the way. And then I got very burned out on my um, career owning a co-working space in Atlanta. I loved working with startup entrepreneurs. I loved building things from the ground up, looking at strategies and financial models and um, all kinds of things like that. But it would, that is an exhausting job for a person who has a design personality because you're face forward with people all day long um and it can that can be really tough and my husband recommended that the thing he had noticed that had always kind of recharged me or kind of reset me or made me feel like oh yeah that's that's who I am at my core was taking a class and learning something and so you know I'd had about an 18 year career as an architect and I went 
to interview for a data science class at General Assembly because I'm also a little bit of a math nerd. Mm. And I thought, oh, that'll be a really interesting thing to sort of add to my like yeah. skill set, right? With some kind of credibility. And the girl I interviewed with for the data science class very gently asked me, why are you not here for the UX design class? Hmm. And I was like, well, I don't know that I want to be a designer anymore. And she's like, everything about you fits with continuing to be a designer. And I had kind of felt like I had left that behind when I left architecture and opened the business. And she said, well, why don't you do this design challenge that's really the interview process? And I brought something back to her and... Zoe uh, Jordan is the girl's name, and she was the the intake person, right? And she's like, I don't know anything about design. So she took what I brought back to the guy who was teaching the design immersive, a lovely, lovely guy named John Kay, who now teaches a similar type of content at the Home Depot here in Atlanta. It's called the Orange Method. And um, he was like, I don't, I don't know who this person is, but you need to get them in the class. And um, nice. she called me up and she's like, I don't, I, she's like, can you come over and just kind of present this project to me? And I did. And afterwards she said, I did not understand at all what you sent back to me, but the guy who's teaching the class cannot wait for you to be in here. And I was like, oh, well, okay. And I was like, this is going to be really fun. So that's how I got back into it. It was really kind of accidentally and with a lot of assistance from other people. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. I love yeah. that. Well, so it's all about those serendipitous moments. Uh, a lot of folks in uh, UX had those serendipitous moments where they realize that it's the path for them. Yeah. And I think being open to that kind of feedback from somebody, you know, oftentimes we get out of the habit of listening to feedback from people because we get negative feedback. Mm. You know, people people will sort of comment on what we don't do well. And so we sort of start shutting our ourselves down to that and it shuts down your ability to take in the positive serendipitous yeah you know, some total stranger saying like hey I, th I think you could be really good at this you should try it so great so thank you for that uh let's dig into your book chapter please make learning a part of your design process and you mentioned learning um actually during what you were just telling us so um sounds like it's a big <laughs> part of your life can you tell us all about that yeah, yeah. So I, I will say I am a, um, I always kind of scoff at the lifelong learner tag, but I think it's because I make the assumption that everybody is as curious and, you know, sort of, I read about a book a week. Um, in addition to that, I read, I don't read the newspaper cover to cover anymore. I, who would even be able to tell if you did or didn't, right? Mm. But now that it's not a physical thing, it's hard to tell. And I read a couple of magazines. I'm a pretty avid consumer of information, especially things that I don't really understand. Um, I've been reading The Economist for probably 15 or 20 years. And I think like, man, they still talk about stuff that I just have to like, right. write down a list of things in Google. So I think it took me a long time to understand that my, you know, anything I look at or listen to and somebody mentions a word or a thing that I don't understand, I'm very quick to either say, like, I don't know exactly what you mean by that or I don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. um, and it took me a long time in the working world to understand that not everybody is as comfortable with that. Right. And that sometimes people's default methodology is to fill in the blanks. And my default methodology is to identify the blank. 
Mm. And it can, you know, it can create some static sometimes because you're asking a lot of questions and not making a lot of assumptions. And um, if you get, I'm way over on one end of that spectrum. And if I'm working with somebody who's way over on the other end, we have to kind of set up some ground rules Mm -hmm. um, because they can, you know, they can interpret my constant barrage of like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, As challenging them. Yeah. Can you tell us more about that difference um, between filling in the blank and asking what that blank means a little bit there? I think sometimes it's a default thing that happens in people's heads. Mm. Um, And I don't want it to come across as a criticism of that viewpoint because I think it's not good or bad. Neither one of the viewpoints is good or bad. We just have a natural tendency toward usually one or the other. I think the person who naturally fills in the blanks is um, just operating from a different perspective. They're like, if you say to them, I really want something that feels really interactive instead of what pops up in my mind is, okay, what does interactive mean to you? Does it mean that it's moving around or does it mean that there's a lot of room for me to put things into it? Or Mm. does it mean that it's imminently customizable or, you know, some people can just mean like, can I change the color of it? Right. Right. So I'm always going to say like, well, what do you mean when you say that? Um, And a lot of that's a lingual approach to it. Like interactive has a lot of different meanings. It has a jargon based meaning in our uh, profession. There's another person who's going to say, when you say, I want it to feel really interactive, they are immediately going to have an idea of what interactive means to them. And so they might, you know, that person might, immediately go to the screen needs to move in conjunction with my um, ability to input information into it, which is a really fantastic, you know, set of principles about design that the screen is responding to the person. Right. Um, But that definition of it for us as designers can be very elevated and very um, layered and complex and all of those things. And sometimes for clients, it's really not. And I always um, want to figure out, like, what's the gap between me mm. and the client and what we right. think? And so sometimes even if I think, like, oh, interactive, you mean this, um, the moment I can hear that conversation in my head saying, oh, they mean this, it's like, mm, do they? Like, can you ask a question to make sure? Or is that what you mean, right? Um, and it's a lot of that sort of... I am not the user. I am also not the client. Right, right. So thanks for that. It's really all about you know, getting at the definition there, it seems like. Can you fill us in on getting that into your design process, making learning part of your design process? Yeah, so I think you know one of the things that seems to be pretty consistent or inherent in the design process for uh, UX people is to make sure we're getting user feedback. Um, and often, you know, because we in our office work on an agile method, and so every two weeks at a minimum, we're getting uh, stakeholder and client feedback um, yeah. and things like that. But there's also this moment, I tend to tie it um, in one way to my daily activities and in another way to my sprint cadence to make sure that it fits in there. I want to stop and think about what is my feedback Um, and that's kind of the place where I say, this is a great way to ask yourself questions in addition to it, incorporating, uh, 
learning into your process, you can also incorporate the idea of cataloging your wins, being a little bit more intentional about measuring your own personal growth and Mm -hmm. recognizing that um, gives you a moment to negotiate for yourself or advocate for yourself in terms of your role or an expansion or recognition or things like that. But in terms of the learning, when you stop and ask yourself that question and you say, you know, in a typical sprint retro style with yourself, what went well, what didn't go well, what do I need to start doing or stop doing? Um, The other question that I add into there is what do I need to learn about? What's the thing that I don't feel as confident about that I could stand to do a little more very purposeful reading or experimentation? Or I might even want to set a goal for myself around producing some work. So I will create design exercises for myself or, um, and I do this some with people on my team. Now that I'm leading a team, I want to, I want to help everybody on my team constantly learn and recognize that they are constantly learning and improving their skills. So I I like to work it in that way. Yeah. And I want to dig in a little bit more on measuring the personal growth. And it sounds like yeah. you're you're setting some personal goals and you're uh, finding activities to fulfill those. Where does input from others come in uh, in terms of either finding those areas or helping you there? So I'm typically using that same information and that same methodology in my regular one-on-ones and in my sort of daily catalog of events of the day. So um, let's talk about the one-on-ones first because most offices do those. So probably every two weeks I meet with my boss. Um, I probably talk to him at length every other day about how things are going because of where I sit in the team. But um, I ask that question a lot about like, hey, what do you think is going well? What do you think is, what do you think we could improve? And I'll bring up topics that I want to learn about sometimes because he is a catalog of information for me. And sometimes because, you know, I'll say like, Hey, I'm thinking about spending some really intentional time learning about this. Um, It may be something he's not as excited about or uh, his response to me the other day when I, I mentioned, okay, everybody on our UX team now has some kind of visual design background other than me. And that makes me feel right. uh, edgy and angsty, right? Like, oh, yep. oh um, am I, you know, that's the imposter syndrome creeps in really fast. And when I started to feel that way, I was like, oh, I could just spend some time working on my visual design skills and my UI design skills in a really purposeful way. So I mentioned this pretty, in a pretty unvarnished way to my boss about like, I feel really insecure about you know, everybody else having this skill. And he was like, that's nice. Everybody else has this one skill. And here are the five skills that you have that other people on the team don't have. And I was like, oh, so I think, you know, that's, that's that place when you open yourself up. What I was expecting him to say is, yeah, you really need to level up your visual design skills, Michelle. Like, and instead what he was saying is you play this really vital role around understanding the client and the language that the client speaks and the business requirements and, you know, the strategy behind what we're doing and how that connects to the business KPIs that you have, you're really strong in it. And 
you're teaching other people on the team. And so in that particular instance, I was looking for criticism and what I got was perspective. Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we were saying at the beginning about making sure you're leaving the door open for feedback because where you might be trying to close it against negative feedback, what you might be expecting, um, designers can be really good at always looking for the whole, not just in the project, but in themselves and their skills and their resume. You know, we are naturally people of critique and criticism and we're expecting that from everybody else all the time. And so sometimes we can try to shut that out. And when you don't, you might get really valuable, positive feedback, validation, reinforcement, you know, that, that you're like, Oh, I didn't, I'm forgetting that. Yeah. No, I mean, I want to stress the importance of one-on-ones. Um, when I was managing a team as well, have I mean, yes, as you said, you check in with folks on projects and things on a daily basis or every other day, but those one-on-ones are the time to dig in a little deeper and do that self-introspection and, and setting aside that time with um, your manager um, and the mm-hmm. people that you manage is just so, so important. One place I want to ask you a question about is what about the folks who don't know where to dig in, where, you know, like, all right, I I know what I like, but like, I don't know where I want to find my niche or where I need to learn. How how do we guide those folks? You know, I think it's just like um, your investment portfolio or thinking about time management and time allocation especially Mm -hmm. when you have a lot of discretionary time, you want to make sure that you have something that's assigned to a position of security. So these are really basic skills, right? Um, And they're more production-oriented skills. There are more jobs in those areas, and those jobs are easy to pick up, Mm -hmm. and they are easy to quantify performance. And so especially when a market contracts or collapses, um, being able to quantify your super basic skills um, is an incredibly valuable thing. Um, I think what, and people think about that a lot. What they don't think about are the other buckets where it's like, here's my basic stuff. Here's my, here's what I'm really passionate about or what I'm deeply interested in. And I don't necessarily need to be particularly gifted at those things. My interest will carry me a really long way in a Mm -hmm. learning journey. Um, whether I'm good or not. And Ira Glass has that great video about, you know, none of us are good in the beginning. Our taste far exceeds our capabilities. Um, And I think your interest can help you or your passion about something can help you be kinder to yourself about those things in the early days. And then the other buckets are about like, how do I stretch myself? Um, and in, in my investment portfolio, I think of these things as like super high risk, like super fast growing. Um, what's the thing I can do that is socially, intellectually, and skill skills-wise totally outside my comfort zone? Um, and that's, that's actually how I ended up picking up some of my skills in strategy and, and uh, in business and financial modeling and things like that is it was... I mean, that's not on the architect's radar, but um, it's something that I was like, oh, I don't know anything about it. So I I had nothing to lose trying to learn it. And I think that's an area that people oftentimes forget. And they think, you know, I need to be working in my 
profession building those skills and you do but you need to look at what's adjacent and you know what of those things that are adjacent strategy dev animation uh you know things like that what's the one thing you're super interested in that you could spend hours and it would feel like play and what's the one thing that you're terrified of that you know my sneaky way of doing it is to say what's the thing nobody else wants to do right because this will differentiate me really quickly yeah yeah and not being scared of trying the new or being wrong or tr- uh, trying something and realizing that it's not for you and it's not it's not wasted time because you learned yeah. that it's not for you and i think trying something and then showing it to somebody for feedback um mm. the first pro forma i built for a business i showed to a guy that that's his specialty right um I was terrified. I took him out to lunch at this Thai restaurant and slid it across the table. And I thought like, oh my God, I've got to drink a glass of water. My teeth are chattering. I'm shaking. I just know he's going to tell me how dumb I am. And um, he was like, wow, like this is, this is really, this is really good. And I was like, oh, this could work. Like this could totally work. So yeah. Great. Well, thanks for all that. Is there anything else about your chapter that you were hoping to convey here today? Um, I think one of the things that is important about it, I talk about um, reviewing your own projects and thinking about um, sort of what you learned and what you want to learn next and, and things like that from reviewing your own projects. But the sort of hidden piece in here is learning by using other people's experience. Um, Mm -hmm. kind of learning vicariously. And so asking the other people in your organization or your peers that you know in the city that you work in, or now that we're all, you know, going to meetups on Zoom all the time and meeting people from all over the place, um, you know, asking all kinds of people like, hey, show me what you've been working on and tell me a little bit about it. Um, I think that goes a long way to people having a better understanding of what is possible, um, sort of starting to understand like, oh, my my peers are gifted in these ways that maybe I'm not interested in doing. Um, you don't have to do everything as a designer, right? You can, you can pick your lane and then know like, oh, I have all these other resources of people who love those things. Um, some of those conversations where you're asking somebody else to talk to you about a project, I've thought like, oh, that's how I've always wanted to do it. And, you know, my, you know, my person that's leading my project hasn't sort of validated that process. But here's this other person next to me at the office who has a different project manager that that's exactly how they're doing it. Mm, like, right. I've, I should be doing it that way too. And I should push a little harder. And, um, and sometimes you'll see somebody's work and you'll think, ooh, this is one of my peers and that's fascinating and look at all those capabilities that they have in that particular area that I don't. Um, my UX bestie from my immersive design class has become a conversational AI specialist and I am astounded mm. at the stuff that she does. It's fascinating to I me. Bet. At the same time, she's incredibly complimentary of the BI stuff that I do and it's kind of outside of her scope. 
but both of us have used the other one as a point of reference in a conversation with a client and had more knowledge about the the area that we don't work in than you might think somebody would because you've got somebody who's a specialist that's telling you about it and um and you you have a really open especially when they're your friends you know you have this really open conversation about like oh my god tell me how you got from a to b or did that or like what's next or what do you wish your boss would let you do that you can't and things like that Great. So, Michelle, thank you for all of that uh, about about your chapter and about your career trajectory. In our yeah. final moments here, we like getting a piece of advice, a piece of career advice. Um, so is there a tip you can offer folks who are either breaking into UX or who have been here for a while? Let's see. Uh, for people who are breaking into UX, um, especially for people who came from other educational backgrounds or other professions, I would say think a lot about your transferable skills Hmm. and learn to quantify them. Um, I used the Gallup strength finder as a way to understand, you know, when you say I'm an architect, everybody thinks they know what that means, but they don't, they know what the product of that is, that it's a building, but they don't really know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I learned to, uh, kind of quantify my skills in a more abstract way. And it it helps me help other people understand how that design career serves the design career I have now. It also helped people understand how that design career served the career in co-working and advising startups and coaching them and things like that. Um, it gave me a lot more credibility in that space. So it's mm-hmm. it's just thinking about how to make your experience portable. Can you tell us a little bit more about quantifying your skills um, in an abstract way? Uh, what are ways that people can do that? Yeah, so as a, you know, one of the things you do as an architect, I'll, I'll just kind of use an anecdote about it. One of the things you do as an architect is you coordinate information between all of the engineers and all of the designers. And so you learn to kind of say, where does this stop and where does this start? and which of these systems has to take priority over the other. Um, when you say, I coordinated all the building systems, people have no idea what that is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you say, I coordinated all of the design disciplines and I had to constantly make decisions about when you have a conflict, what needed to take priority of one over the other. All of a sudden, what your creative director or your you know head of head of UX is hearing is, oh, this is a person who can cross over disciplines very easily. Yeah. Um, and that puts you immediately in a seat to have a sort of managerial or director or team leadership role. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's finding what's the abstract language to describe the skill to get it out of, out of the particular uh, sector that you might've worked in or area or title or role. Um, and then using the role-based things as an anecdote to help explain it to somebody. Yep. Yeah. Great. Well, thanks for all that. Uh, we're just about out of time here. So, uh, Michelle, uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks. It's been really great to be here and to be a part of the project as a whole. Wonderful. And thanks for being a part of it. Uh, my guest today has been Michelle Morgan, who wrote the chapter, Make Learning a Part of Your Design Process. Thanks for listening, everyone. 
The 97 UX Things podcast is a companion to the book 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know, published by O'Reilly, and all book royalties go to UX nonprofits. The theme music is Iron Lung by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard, and I'm your host and book editor, Dan Berlin. Please remember to find the needs in your community and fill them with your best work. Thanks for listening.